Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Daily Friends Show. I am your host, Nicholas Lorimer, and today I'm joined by Mr. Michael Morris. Michael, how are you doing? I'm very well, thanks, Nick. Uh, good to be uh, joining you after a, a little break. I think I haven't been on since... Uh, yeah, week, for at least at least a week, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're also joined today by Mr. Morris Ruitt. Morris, how are you? All right, and you, Nick. How's it, Michael? Good. Morris, you know, nice way to, to bring the enthusiasm there, Morris. <laughs> but uh let's uh get into our first news stories of today and this is of course uh following on from yesterday's discussion about the cadre deployment records so the da fought this long court battle to get the anc to hand over the records of its cadre deployment committee meetings um that it held and some of those documents were handed over but some of them are still missing now some of them are missing, particularly the minutes taken while President Cyril Ramaphosa was the head of the Cater Deployment Committee, because Vikila Mbalula says they did not keep any minutes during Ramaphosa's tenure as the chairperson of the Cater Deployment uh, meeting, um, and therefore they can't provide them. Uh, however, they did say that they had some emails which they had lost due to them being deleted by an employee who was trying to f- uh, free up space in his email inbox. Now... That sounds like a very convenient excuse, right? It's the kind of thing that you might uh, say if you were just trying to make an excuse. But having worked a little bit with government IT systems and government email addresses, um, or, or, or and I suspect the ANCs are very similar, uh, they are terrible. They have limited space and they often fill up. So if the ANC has got their email systems anything like government does, I actually wouldn't terribly be surprised if someone had deleted a whole bunch of stuff by accident. So you could sort of say that Mbalula is almost claiming that they can't comply with the court order because the system is down. Um, Before we get into what some of the things coming out of this meeting, um, the the, the minutes and info about the Cater Deployment Committee are, uh, Maurice, what, what do you make of this excuse? I mean, obviously... Um, the DA is probably not too happy with some of these claims, but uh, do you find them credible? Um, at face value, you would probably say no, but uh, we know how incompetent the ANC can often be. I mean, it didn't pay its staff or however long it was till it somehow magically found some money down the back of Solorama Pause's couch or something, I think. So, but uh, yeah, so I mean, I don't think it's actually impossible that these emails were actually deleted and it's probably a valid excuse. You know, it's one of the few times when you think maybe the dog did, did eat the homework. So, but it's, but looking at these emails, I mean, it really makes your hair stand on end. And uh, the article, uh, in, uh, there's an article in News 24 about this. And the journalist Sipo Masondo, he uh, draws parallels to the Brutabont. Uh, which, uh, as you know, was basically a secret organization, which also kind of ran South Africa while the National Party was in charge. And it's, you know, definitely gives you those kind of vibes. And, you know, it's, I think there's lots of, I mean, it's actually crazy, the parallels between the ANC and the National Party. But I think uh, often uh, nationalist parties of uh, whatever stripe are often uh, uh, very similar to each other. And I think that tells you another thing that's, uh, reflects that is that uh, the National Party or the new National Party at the time, uh, most of its senior officials didn't uh, when the uh, NNP disbanded. They didn't join the DA. They joined the ANC. And I think they probably felt more comfortable in the ANC, you know, former Afghan or 
Afrikaans nationalists probably found, found themselves a bit more comfortable in the ANC than the DA, which I think is quite telling. So about those parallels, this News24 article you're referencing um, talks about how much power the CADA Deployment Committee seems to have wielded over government appointments. Now, to critics of CADA Deployment like us, this is not particularly news. Um, this is long what we had suspected was the way it worked, and I think the, the sort of evidence of who was getting appointed to what made it clear that this was hard work. But it's, it is kind of still shocking to see it revealed in black and white exactly how the system worked. So these minutes reveal, for example, that President Ramaphosa at one point had to apologize to the CADA Deployment Committee for appointing a presidential state-owned enterprises council member without consulting it first. The committee also uh, uh, criticized Praveen Gordhan and the former defense minister for ignoring its recruitment processes. And in fact, the records show that the CADA Deployment Committee expects pretty much every senior bureaucratic position in government that comes available to be first, uh, uh, the, the vacancy, uh, they, they must be notified of the vacancy and then they will draw up a list of candidates that they think is appropriate for them. Uh, this once again stands in stark contrast to President Ramaphosa's claims on the stand of the Zonda Commission saying things like, uh, the ANC doesn't appoint judges. Well, very clearly, the ANC itself thinks that it does appoint judges and director generals and bureaucrats. And this is not just we're the ruling political party, so we get to put in whoever we want. This is a very deliberate program of action to ensure that people loyal to the party, vetted by a party structure, not by the elected representatives of the, of the country, are appointing people into senior positions. Michael, what do you make of all this? Mm. A lot of different things here, and I'd like to touch on, on some of the things that Marius mentioned as well. Um, and that that uh, comparison with the with the apartheid years, um, just on the the, the first story, um, you know, mice mice in my inbox, uh, whatever the excuse is. I think what it also what you also get a sense of here is the re quite casual approach to perhaps record keeping to the idea that it might uh, warrant some kind of public interested scrutiny. Uh, clearly not. Um, the, the you know the, the policy as you as you say goes all the way back to the the, you know, the ANC's 1997 uh, determination, um, to which of course uh, Nelson Mandela gave his imprimatur uh, that the party must have its hands on all levers of power. I think was the phrase um, that that was used, and and so it it was, you know, for for an awfully long time. It is sorry. It, Sorry, just to interrupt yeah, on that one. And yeah, that yeah, isn't yeah. just within that isn't just within the state. It's also within yeah. the economy, social exactly. and cultural yeah. spheres. So it's a total domination of society, not just simply the government and political positions. Exactly, exactly. And and uh, you know, our colleague Terence Corrigan has written a, a great deal about the 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 notion that the ANC has this sort of kind of historical mission to be. Um, the leader of society. It is the, the deliverer of the future. It, was, it, it brought the, the liberation and now it is the embodiment of everything that's good and going forward, and this, this is going to be how it is. And Leavers of Power fits into that sort of narrative too very much. Um, and the idea that they represent the people, that we, you know, we are the people's representative. This is what is willed. It is the, the people will us to, to do what we 
uh, have said we are going to do. Um, and so, and I, I, you know, imagine I, I absolutely agree with Morris. This this connection with with uh, the apartheid past, where um, the institutions were contaminated by this heavy sort of political influence. Um, I will remember it as a young reporter. Uh, you saw it everywhere, and our parents' generation knew it. Um, in the case of all kinds of things, uh, I, I can't remember the names now, but the, the head of the defence force, for instance, in the in the late forties, was summarily got rid of, and the, you know the chiefs of various departments who happened to be English speaking and, and probably uh, more smuts people than anyone else, they were quite rapidly got rid of, and so there, there is this sort of institutional memory or this institutional habit in South Africa, I think, that we, it's going to take a while for us to get over. Um, of people who were much more comfortable with the idea that you had a you know a political party that elected to power, it has the carries the will of the people, um, and it's quite natural that um, that it should then have this capacity to call the shots and appoint people and so on. Um, and the irony, <clears throat> I mean, coming back to your point, Nicholas, is is, is of course that what we've been saying for years is that a professional, dispassionate, independent-minded state civil service that actually has a a, a kind of a, 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 a defined sense of its own contribution to the national interest as functionaries, not as party political figures, it actually serves the masses much better than uh, people who are supposedly on the side of the masses or on the side of the majority or speaking for what, whichever political party is in power. It's actually much better for most people that they have dependable, um, legitimate institutions that are professional and, and uh, divorced from politics. Yeah. Exactly right. Uh, I would also hazard a theory that one of the reasons the ANC has been so dominant in the country's politics is in part due to the cater deployment policy. The fact that the mm. ANC not only has branches in every part of the country, not only has this big election machinery, but also has influential people in positions in, in the cultural sphere in the NGO sphere in the business sector. Um, and that this has been a big part of why it's been so successful is because the ANC's ideas and messages are just constantly sort of, uh, pushed out into the whole of society and so uh, i mean we've complained about this before is the or at least i have the um the fact that you know the main the sort of paradigm the narrative of south africa often seems to be captured within this kind of anc framework of how things work uh and um i think that that's a big part of their success uh, maurice do you agree with that and do you have any final thoughts i think that's exactly it and um just on cater deployment i think you know, it's something that probably happens a lot in, in the world, but, you know, people, political parties will put people that agree with their views and so on in certain positions. But I think the ANC has, does go a bit further, as you point out. They, yeah. uh, people, the, the head of Cricket South Africa or the head of the Johannesburg Philharmonic Orchestra or something, you know, they'd have to be uh, an ANC member. And obviously, you know, I, you can almost understand, okay, the head of an SOE, you know, probably going to be somebody who has to be on side with the ANC and so on. But as you point out, the point of catered deployment is for the ANC or uh, ANC-linked people to be in charge of every single important institution in the country, whether it's the editor of a newspaper or the vice chancellor of university, whatever the case is. Yeah. That's, I think that's what makes it so insidious that the ANC people have to be in charge of basically everything. 
And I think, and I, we must also remember, this is not a new policy. Uh, this is from the late 1990s. And the only mm. political party that pushed back at the time was the <clears throat> Democratic Party. And they were given a lot of stick for it, you know, like fear-mongering and Afro-pessimism and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, one thing you've got to say about the D DP and the DA, you can maybe disagree with them, but lots of their warnings <laughs> have, uh, are quite prescient. I mean, uh, mm. in 2009 election, I remember uh, they posted saying, stop Zuma. And I think the ANC itself is saying stop Zuma. <laughs> it tells you something. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I think it was in the 90s that Tony Leon, the former leader of the DADP, um, wrote a, a book called Two Visions for the Rainbow Nation or something like that. It was like a little, little pamphlet type of book. Yeah. And the description of the path of the kind of catered appointment National Democratic Revolution in South Africa is eerily similar to what ended up actually happening in the historical yeah. reality. Um, <clears throat> So yeah, that is always something worth keeping in mind. They are, I mean, pretty prescient on that one. Um, but you know, I think that this hopefully is the beginning of the end of of cater deployment sort of immunity from a lot of criticism. I think the tide has turned in the national discourse now against cater deployment, and it is increasingly being recognised as a problem. Um, and that's why, for example, we had a minister. I can't remember which minister it was now, but we did a show on it. Um, who in a parliamentary question <laughs> a few months ago declared that uh, the government never had done cater deployment, that it was not part of government <laughs> policy, <laughs> which, <laughs> which was kind yeah, of embarrassing when about two weeks later, Gwede Mantashe said uh, cater deployment had transformed the country. <laughs> like, no, yeah, hold on, which and, one is it? <laughs> and, yeah, and we're not going to, we're not going to move it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is... There was a time when, you know, to counter these things, to speak publicly about it, as, as, as our organization has been doing for a long time, you were you were immediately tarred with this idea that you were countering the will of the people, or you were countering transformation, or you were being essentially racist because you were speaking against some kind of the interests of some kind of racial bloc. And I think that that is that is receding um, as people see, A, that, you know, transformation has been, in fact, retarded in many ways. Um, and, you know, the reporting on, on the detail, um, all credit to the DA for having winkled the stuff out of out of the government. But, you know, you see those little WhatsApps and the, and the, and the emails and it's all, it's, it, you know, it's quite shockingly, um, unprofessional and um, and just kind of party centric, you know. It's just about plugging little polls all over the place with the people we want, uh, and no right. discussion about you know what they're going to be bringing to the job and experience and expertise and what their plans are and all the rest. But simply exactly. whether they've got, got the party credential or not, which yeah. And, and this I, is exactly why we say something like corruption is a is a feature of this kind of policy not a bug when yeah. you have catered deployment it's inevitably going to result in corruption it doesn't matter what party or who's doing it uh it's always going to result in something like this okay let us move on to our next story and that is the finance minister Enoch Kolonkwana was being asked about what he thought how well he thought he had done on the budget uh <laughs> he said something quite funny he said you know Government does have to accept some responsibility for the electricity and transport logistics crisis that are contributing to slow growth. Uh, uh, but he did, however, say that he thought the Treasury had done the best it could amidst the constraints of the, the fiscus and the South African economy. Korongwana rated his own budget an 8 out of 10, um, which is funny. And he said he said that he did the best he could in the prevailing circumstances. Um, Michael? Uh, what do you make of that? I mean, 
on one hand, it's kind of silly for the minister to be, you know, it's always silly to say, how well do you think a job you did? Um, you know, he's probably, he's going to say eight out of 10. It's a very safe answer. Uh, but at the same time, you know, considering this is an election year, it could have been much worse. Yeah, I mean, um, I suppose the first thing that's funny about it is that we're so unaccustomed to uh, politicians att- making some kind of attempt to, to to level honestly with the circumstances they find themselves in. Um, you know, his reference to we've done the best we could under prevailing circumstances, but earlier acknowledging that prevailing circumstances are very much a product of the, the government that he's uh, a part of. Um, you can see the difficulty that it, it, I mean, it must be uh, quite a tortuous uh, business sometimes for somebody like him um, to, you know, to try to square all these things. Um, So uh, far better that he said these, these things, which, you know, seem quite amusing or comical in a way, um, than that he, he, you know, just simply lied about it and said, well, you know, it's a 10 out of 10 budget and, and, and South Africa is the best place in the world. So there is this, this sort of acknowledgement that, uh, that they have a problem and it, 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 a lot of it comes out of what, how the government is responding to things. Um, the problem is, of course, is whether his cabinet uh, can go the next step and say, well, these are the things that we acknowledge need to be done. Um, that's really what South Africa is waiting for. Um, and because uh, we all, you know, we talk about these problems day in, day out and have done for years. Now we want to look at, you know, who has the plan to, to fix it. So that's really the issue, and that's you no, know it, he reveals it exactly by default. Yeah, when you say uh, in the prevailing circumstances, it's a little bit uh, mysterious. But of course, when one begins to dig into the prevailing circumstances, they are his colleagues in cabinet <laughs> to yeah. a large degree, which yeah. is what's so awkward about this. And it is interesting, mm-hmm. however, to me that the ANC's financial wing, the the financial ministry mm-hmm. at least under the ANC's control, has remained the most credible institution in government Mm. in a lot of ways. Um, Despite the fact that the ANC ideologically would very much, I think, like to just open the taps and do whatever it wanted with the money, despite the fact that there's all this pressure on it in the election year to just give everyone huge grant increases and just raise taxes on everyone they don't like and go completely buck wild and, you know, maybe rein it in next year after they've won again. Um, I don't know, Marius. What do you make of this? Uh, I do, however, feel that despite that, finance, the finance ministry's credibility is chipping away, and you can see that in some of their projections for the next couple of years, which, although relatively modest, I think are still actually out of touch. Particularly the stuff on reining and spending. Mm. Well, I do think the national treasury's uh, credibility is probably not what it was a couple of years ago, but it's still for government departments still does pretty well. And I think the National Treasury and the South African Reserve Bank, they basically the little uh, Dutch boy with his finger in the dark. You know, as soon as they remove the finger, then, you know, all bets are off. If the national, uh, if the Saab gets nationalized or something like that, I think it'll be, yeah, I'll, uh, it won't be great. But uh, I also think uh, this is such a good example of doublethink or cognitive uh, dissonance. You know, the ANC often, the government ministers often identify the problem quite well, but then they don't, don't do anything to change it. I mean, in uh, the budget speech, yeah. uh, uh, Gordon Guana said how, you know, uh, government procurement, they're spending two or three times on a laptop, what they would be, you know, just buying it on the open market and so on. But then he says it based in the same breath, but we're not going to get rid of preferential procurement, don't worry. But that is why you're paying two or three times for a laptop. 
And as mm. even a couple of years ago, I mean, it could be as long as 10 years ago now, Gwedi Mantashe said, you know, this is ridiculous. We're paying 30 or 40 rand for a bottle of water for a conference when we could be paying five rand if we just go to the shop and buy it, you know, but nothing changes. It's, it's actually, it's so bizarre. And mm. it's clear that I think there's a lot of people in the ANC who, who agree with us on a lot of the problems, but they just can't, they're just so captured by the ideology or just because of how the, or the, the inertia. Works. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's what that's mm. what I was looking for. Mm. Yeah. They just can't change it. Even though they know, I think there are a lot of people in the ANC who know we can't carry on like this, but they just can't change it because of the politics and because of the ideology and all kinds of reasons. So it's yeah, it's it's quite a thing actually. So and I mean to Gordon Guana's credit, I do think in the circumstances it wasn't a completely terrible budget, but as you say, the circumstances are terrible because of his political party and the government that he's part of. <laughs> Uh, any final thoughts, Michael? Yeah, I mean, just uh, just listening to to tomorrow speaking there, um, this this difficulty to just come to grips with, you know, we've now identified what the problem is, but and the solution is almost suggested by exactly what we've been describing. And I, I often think that the, the ease with which the government itself has exploited so many of the sort of tropes of the their tired old and, and misleading tropes of the South African debate, race, white monopoly capital, all these things. They know exactly how easy it is to exploit these things and to make a point and to get people to cheer and so on. That they themselves are now afraid of of undermining themselves by backtracking and having this kind of stuff turned against them. I, you know, it, it, it is a, it's a very strange thing. Um, it's that kind of ideological trap that you get stuck into that makes it very, very difficult for you to, to say, well, actually we were wrong, um, but we're going to do this for all very good reasons and, um, and you know, to kind of set out why and, have a kind of proper cogent debate about it this shouldn't be this shouldn't be impossible right the it's sort of the ANC has this weird thing of saying oh no what we've been doing isn't working so we need to do it two times as as hard as we're doing it now <laughs> it's like Real you see that hasn't been hard. Yeah, yeah exactly the <laughs> BE hasn't been strong enough yet the the, uh, the 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 property rights haven't been degraded enough yet it's also sort of like we, uh, we need the state to be in charge of more things because the state is terrible yeah. so we need them to be, yeah. have even more power yeah the ANC has this it's like a, it's like kind of a broken machine you know you can put any oh, broken computer you can put any answer into it and the answer that comes any problem into it and the answer that comes out is more centralized control um, garbage in garbage out so that's what happens yeah. Right. Uh, okay, let's move on to our last story for today, um, or maybe second last. And this is about a promise made by President Cyril Ramaphosa. He was speaking to traditional leaders in Parliament, and he says that he promises that we're going to do something about the terrible cases where children drown on their way to school. Very poor children in rural areas often have to walk quite a long distance to get to school. And sometimes they have to cross rivers that are in flood. And every now and again, someone will get hurt or drown or get swept away or something terrible will happen to them during that. Of course, there's also other dangers um, when kids have to walk long distances to school. They are at risk of crime, um, uh, particularly in, in, in very uh, uh, kind of lawless parts of the country. So it's all around uh, a poor state of affairs. Um, Ramaphosa said, uh, uh, you know, 
the, the process of, of, of kids having to walk to school uh, and drowning is something we are determined to end. And he said that government had committed to building 96 bridges across the country to reduce this problem. He said many of the bridges have been built or are being completed, and we are now also going to move on to build more bridges. We need to litter our country with navigable structures. Now, on the one hand, great. We definitely need bridges over some of these rivers. We definitely need a safer way for kids to cross, to get to school, and for adults too. It's not just kids who drown sometimes when there's, there's, there's heavy rains. But this is kind of missing the point. The problem is that we have kids who need to walk these extremely long distances through dangerous terrain to schools. Um, and that really, you know, we should be working towards a system where every kid has access to some kind of transport, not just because the government provides it, but because the country is wealthy enough that people uh, can, can afford alternative forms of transport. Um, Michael, what do you make of the story? Mm. It's a very, sort of classic case of, of you know, an isolated incident being looked at in isolation, or not an isolated incident, but a particular thing being looked at in isolation um, and being treated as if that itself is, 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 is the problem and, 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 and ignoring the wider context. So the wider context would include, for instance, building bridges because they are economically vital for the regions to develop and for everything else to improve the tax base to widen the facilities the services and so on to improve so that's where you know you get proper schooling being built proper housing perhaps concentrated services in, in particular areas where you'd have a school you'd have a bus stop you'd have some kind of transport network it's a it's a bigger sort of plan but that bigger plan does require quite fresh thinking and it's thinking as Morris is saying it's not it's not the government just doing more stuff over and over and over again uh, and and trying to meet every little problem that's what he's trying to do it's it's not a little problem but it is an, a problem in isolation um, he needs to see the bigger picture in which transport and schooling and the the rural economy is is part of the, the whole South African scene um, and that is what requires uh, the policy change and requires government action um, and yeah so it is it's a quite a tragic illustration of exactly what happens when you get this very narrow focus that seems to be saying a wonderful thing we're going to protect little kids well we all want to do that but that's that's actually not the origin of the problem uh, it's that's a symptom of, of a much greater issue um, and that's where I, the I, policy I, focus needs to be. i think i think part of the problem here is that sometimes it's almost as if the ANC doesn't remember a very basic rule about how the world works, which is that poverty sucks. Poverty makes so many things worse for people. It creates social problems because it's harder to hold together a family when you're under a lot of economic stress. Uh, it can create health problems. It can create uh, problems for kids growing up, that they grow up in a bad environment. It can limits your access to education. It just does so many terrible things to you. But so often, rather than focusing on abolishing poverty, by improving the economy, by creating jobs, by you know giving people the opportunity to become wealthier, mm. the government's approach is to try and make poverty somehow more comfortable. Oh, don't worry, no one will starve because everyone will get a five hundred rand grant. Sure, that's better than people starving, but it's not sustainable. It's not uplifting. It doesn't end poverty. We should be looking at ending poverty, not making it more comfortable. And this is a great example of that, right? Yay, now you can walk to school um, without having to cross the river. That's good. But you shouldn't need to have to walk to school in the far first place if it's far away. Um, Marius, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I just think this is, uh, as you point out with poverty, I think one of the biggest tragedies of 
post-apartheid South Africa is the amount of human capital and potential that's been destroyed. Because as you point mm. out, if you're born into a poor household, you firstly probably not going to get uh, uh, fed as you should. You're going to be malnourished, and that's got all kinds of uh, consequences for you as an adult. You're probably not going to go to nursery school, which is actually a very important phase for kids. And your parents probably not going to have money to buy, you know, books for you to read and, you know, mobiles and things to help develop your brain and all that kind of thing when you're a kid. And then you go to some terrible school where you don't get taught properly. And, you know, that's, and then you just, it's this, this terrible cycle of poverty. And then you end up in the same position. The kids you have end up in the same position. And it's really just such a distraction of human potential. And it's, it's absolutely terrible. But that, that all said, there, uh, often I do think small interventions can make big differences. I remember uh, I read a study a couple of years ago about, uh, it was some someplace in India, I can't remember exactly where. And uh, the girls uh, in this village weren't, weren't going to school because they had to do you know chores and they had to do all kinds of things. Then, I don't know if it was the government or an NGO, but they gave all the girls in the village bicycles. And then school attendance shot up because now yeah. girls could get to school within half an hour instead of two or three hours, whatever the case was. So they had time to go to school in the morning and then get back and be able to do their chores and so on. So that's obviously not, you know, that doesn't change things, but it's a it's a small kind of step that we can do. But as you say, like, I think these small interventions have to work with the broad interventions of making a country where right. you're not relying on that 500 rand grant. You can go get a job, which is going to be able to support you and you are going to be able to realize your potential. And and it's worth pointing out the sort of larger context. India has lots of low-cost private schools. I think it's got more low-cost private schools than anywhere else in the world. It educates oh. literally millions of the world's poor, poorest people in private schools. And it has yeah. economic growth of like 7%. Um, so, yes, I, I, I would agree that, you know, the small interventions can definitely help in the context of the big things being done correctly. Um I mean, India, but, uh, I think, as you say, 7% economic growth. That's adding about the, uh, an economy the size of South Africa's every year or 18 months. I mean, just to put it into context. No, exactly. Um, I'm actually currently writing a, a research paper on India, and it is, it is staggering just how big that country is and how mm. much there is going on there. But, uh, mm. okay, let's move on very quickly to our last story here. And, Marius, uh, there has been a great achievement in the field of South African cricket. Would you like to tell us more? Uh, yeah, so a guy called Tristan Stubbs, he's played a couple of games for South Africa. He scored a couple hundred for his uh, local team, the Warriors, against the Tuskers, which is basically KwaZulu-Natal inland. And so I'm sure if people listening out know a bit about cricket, scoring a triple hundred is quite a great achievement. And uh, from what I've uh, been able to work out, I think he's only the 13th South African in history to score a triple hundred in first-class cricket. So uh, well done to Tristan Stubbs. And uh He's played one test for South Africa. It didn't go very well for him, but I think we'll definitely see him. Uh, yeah, he'll be playing a lot of tests for South Africa in the future, I think. And I must say, I was very pleasantly surprised by um, uh, Bafana Bafana's recent performance in the African Cup of Nations, which I think took a lot of people who are not closely following soccer by surprise because Bafana Bafana has performed so poorly for so long. To see us getting actually relatively high in that uh, in that, in that that uh, contest, the best we've done in many years, Um was a delightful change of pace and maybe in the not too distant future maybe it's too much to hope for we could do well in a, in a soccer world cup and also win a cricket world cup and also maybe hold on to our rugby trophy can uh, i just uh, say one thing about that i think we should not be celebrating what uh, bafana did or it's a good semi-finals of an african cup of nations cool whatever first time in 15 years or something they were made the semi-finals and a country with our resources and what we have we should yeah, be right. one of the powerhouses of 
African soccer. We shouldn't be celebrating semi final. I mean, it's good, cool, great, whatever. But the yeah. Proteas made the semi finals. We semi-finals should be stomping Nigeria Cup. into the floor. Exactly. The Proteas made the semi finals of last year's Cricket World Cup and it was a disappointment because we should be, you know, we made the semi finals, but that's not good enough. And I think that should be the same for Bafana. Making the semi finals, it's, we should, we, you know, it's, everybody's going crazy, but we haven't made the semi finals in like 20 years or whatever it is. And it's, I think it's symptom of South African mediocrity where we celebrate this thing. And I hope Bafana carries on in this form, you know, but I don't think we should be, you know, it's, it's an achievement, but it's not something to be proud of right now. I saw an interview with our uh, with the Bufana Bufana soccer coach, who is, I think, uh, a Belgian. Um, and uh, he said that, you know, there were a lot of things he liked about South Africa, but he thought our roads were so dangerous um, that he couldn't cycle, which is his hobby outside of coaching soccer. Yeah. Uh, he said he did try to go and cycle in Johannesburg and someone almost ran him over, then recognized him as the Bufana Bufana coach and said, oops, sorry, coach. And he said, you fool, you almost killed me. <laughs> 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 oh dear anyway um, that's all the time we have for today we hope that you have a wonderful weekend and we will of course see you next week with the daily friend show cheers everyone have a great one